Well, as I said, today's a big deal. St. John the Baptist, our liturgical calendar, gives him really a very important space because it's got two feasts dedicated to him, his birth and his martyrdom. Um, and there's actually, there's a second reading, and we're doing, a, this is a solemnity, we do the creed as well. Okay, so after we're done here with the homily, we'll do the creed together, which can be found on page 8 9 in your miscellaneous. Um, so John the Baptist is a big deal. But what's remarkable is that even though he's such a big deal, he has an amazing, um, he's amazingly humble. Okay? And we see that, right, again, it's embedded in the liturgical calendar. Very interesting. Okay? So, right now, we just passed the summer solstice. Okay? And that means that the days from here on out Grow less and less and less and less and less. Okay? When Christ is born in December, what happens? The days start getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And John the Baptist says, the famous line is in the Gospel of John, he says, I must decrease and he must increase. Isn't that neat? It's embedded right in there. It's not, that's the Holy Spirit that is providence. That's not any kind of like, you know, there wasn't a committee or a council set up at some point in church history where some bishops got together and said, hey, can you do something kind of cool and nifty with this whole John the Baptist birth thing? You know? It's providence, it's the Holy Spirit, it's, it's what, it's God communicating to us something very important about John the Baptist. Although he was so important, he's right up there along with the Blessed Virgin Mary, uh, and with our Lord, and yet he has this total humility whereby He's all about Jesus. He points to Jesus. I must decrease, he must increase. It's not about me, it's about him. And isn't that an important lesson for us all? To decenter ourselves from our lives and put Christ in that, in that center. And interpret the world all through the lens of Jesus and not through, through our own lens. You know, right now I'm listening to my next audio book here, um, and I don't, like to waste people's time and, and, you know, so I don't always go around like, you have to read this book because simply the fact that I'm reading it right now. So I don't, I don't do that thing like I recommend books all the time. It's like people have more than enough time. They don't have enough time, you know. But this one I would recommend. It's called The Coddling of the American Mind. And it's yet another sort of a cultural commentary and exploration of this phenomenon that's happening on university campuses. And the, these authors trace it back to about 2014 or so. This whole idea, I guess, in Sunday Hama, this whole idea of um, trigger warnings and safe spaces and all of this complete craziness, complete craziness. What these authors do, and it's very interesting, uh, I recommend the book because it's probably the most fair and balanced treatment of this thing. It's not like they're leftists or they're rightists or whatever. And their goal in writing this book is precisely not to increase the, pol- the political and social polarization that's taking place in, in America. Because that, we're, we're, we're doing really bad on that front. We are so bad at each other, you know. So these authors are not contributing to that. But what they're doing is they're, they have a very constructive contribution uh, and real authentic dialogue going on. And what they show, though, is that some of the problems taking place in the universities, there's explicit policies being put in place that are the exact, that are counseling methods of dealing with interpersonal conflict that are the exact opposite 
that psychologists, especially cognitive behavioral therapists, recommend the exact opposite. So, like, if you go to a, if you have depression, if you have just various problems in your life, and you go to a, a psychologist who's trained in cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a, is a kind of a prominent method of therapy nowadays, and it's it's relatively effective. It's just as effective as drugs, and it's safe, you know, because it doesn't have negative side effects. Uh, what they basically do is they get you to kind of question your thoughts, you know, so your feelings and your emotional state. Um, there is a relationship between that and your thoughts. What what are you telling yourself? What are your beliefs? And oftentimes, when they you know you start probing into people who deal with depression and things, they have a certain kind of there are certain patterns of thought. And so the therapist's goal is to try to get the person to become aware of their patterns of thought and modify that, and thereby influence their their emotional state and their moods. And so some of the the uh, false kind of ways of thinking that the therapist has to deal with is, is people who, they begin with their feelings, and then they interpret the whole world, and they interpret other people's intentions according to their feelings. And what these authors are showing is that this is what's being taught in the universities, it, and it's increasing the amount of offense that's being taken. So there's like these two real primary things that you gotta keep in mind. Is first of all, make a distinction between person's intentions and then the outcome of their actions. And we do this as common sense. It's part of our tradition in Western society. We have the idea that in law, for example, that someone is innocent until they're proven guilty. So like the default mode is innocence. And then if you, you have positive evidence that they're guilty, then you convict them. But the default mode is innocence. Okay, and everybody would appreciate that about, you know, you don't want to have the government think that you're guilty and then you've got to now prove that you're innocent. It's, that's crazy, right? You have like fascist regimes do that. China does that, right? The Bolsheviks do that. This is, this is a, a recipe for social disaster. So, you, first, that's one basic principle. The other basic principle is making a distinction between intentions and then the result of actions and the outcomes. So we do, again, in law, for example, we see there's a difference between murder, okay, premeditated murder, the person intended to kill this person, versus manslaughter, meaning it was accidental, all right? And the guilt for manslaughter is way less, right? There might have been negligence or something, right? And then there's some certain circumstances where really bad things can happen, and there's really, there's no negligence involved, there's no malintent. And so we make this distinction between people's intentions and then the outcome of their actions. And if you do away with those two things, first of all, make a distinction between people's intentions, right? And, and, and then you give them the benefit of the doubt. Say, well, what you do is you interpret their behavior, you interpret different events that happen to you in life charitably. You put the best possible interpretation on it. Your psychological health is going to be so much better so much better. If you read people's minds and you hold them as guilty before proven innocent, in your world, everybody's going to be your enemy. Everybody's going to be out to get you. You're going to be paranoid. And these two things are being undermined. These two sort of principles of psychological health are being undermined deliberately and directly by what they're teaching these kids. And so the number of offenses that are the offense that's being taken is multiplying lawsuits, 
against universities and universities setting up committees and spending millions of dollars to deal with all of these different offenses that are being taken. It's a, it's a total chaos. But it goes back to the whole idea of who's in the center? Is it you and your emotions and your feelings and it's all about me and me? Thank God we have Jesus in our lives and he can be the center. Like John the Baptist, we can say he must increase, we must decrease. We make room for him so that he is the dominant factor and force. We interpret the world through him, not through our own selfishness, through our own offenses, through our own emotions, but Christ is the center. And we don't have to have, we don't have to fear that we're going to lose a place. Because in eternity, God has got a place for us. We don't have to be out fighting for ourselves all the time, you know? God's got a place for us. We can decrease, He can increase, and we can let that happen without a fear that we're going to get snuffed out of existence or destroyed or there's no future for us, there's no hope. It's the exact opposite. When we put Jesus first, when He's the center of everything, when it's all about Him and not about us, we've got a place secure in eternity, uh, a special place that's been given to us, something we didn't have to fight for, but something that's been given to us by the Lord. So today, my brothers and sisters, um, as we celebrate the Feast of John the Baptist, we remember that very, very important principle uh, that is conducive to our own psychological health, it's conducive to uh, a society that is functional, that works, it's, it's conducive to peace amongst neighbors and, and goodwill, uh, and that is that we must decrease and Christ must increase.